Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week I am starting this a little bit different and I'm actually going to start with an update. Now a lot of you will know that I've been following along with us or following along with the news but this week was the start of the Sheku Bio case being re-looked into. I think we've spoke about this quite a lot and gave updates on it and I just kind of wanted to give you a really brief update on this first as this ties into the case I'm doing this week. So the case is underway and his sister Caddy has actually described Sheku as Scotland's George Floyd but taking the knee in Black Lives Matter will mean absolutely nothing if Scotland fails to support justice for Sheku and there was talks of all these people outside with Black Black Lives Matter and the one that really got me was the one that said like not one rogue cop, the system was rotten and it got me thinking just about police failings in general and I know that Sheku's was a lot to do with racism and that's obviously the whole thing was it because he's colour but I think there has actually been cases as well that I've heard of that there has been police failings and it's not due to race, it can be due to just not doing the work as well as they could have. Which is why this week I'm going to tell you the story of Kevin McLeod. Have you heard of this case at all? Does this ring any bells? No, none at all. Okay. Um, and just before I start, I just obviously want to kind of give a like disclaimer that this is, has absolutely nothing to do with racism. So I know I'm kind of linking it to police failings, but I don't want people then being like, he was white. How can you compare that to Sheku Bio? I'm not comparing it in the whole racism argument. I'm comparing it to police not doing their jobs right. And also just another disclaimer that I am a podcaster not a detective. So yes, I am opinionated. People love to tell me in Samantha, we have wrong opinions, but they're opinions. So if you don't like it, yeah, You've got way too many opinions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we both, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we both do. Thanks. Uh, but it's just when people are like, mm, yeah, that's wrong. And I'm like, okay, but it's my opinion. So this is basically just my versions of this. This is a bit different as well, because I'm leaving it up to you to decide if you think there was a crime or not. Because people I've spoke to about this aren't really sure. So I will tell you what I think, my opinion at the end, something you can tell me mine, and I would love to hear what you guys think. So I'm going to get started. So this case takes part, takes place, sorry, at the end of the 90s, and it is in Wick, which is a town in Caithness in Scotland. Um, I didn't really know much about Wick, but it was a very small place. Like the population in the late 90s was around 8,000, and this has now gone down to about 6,000-ish. So Wick is actually near John O'Groats which Sam and I have actually been to, which is the most north point of Scotland. I think we um, stayed in Wick, Caitlin. Did we? I think that's where the B&B was, just to say. That what? small place, the tiny, tiny place. I thought that was Thurzo. Oh, maybe it was. Ignore me. Right, never mind. Sorry. But I think we, yeah, so Samantha and I did the North Coast 500 a couple of years ago. Honestly, any tips on the North Coast 500, if you want them, don't come to me and Samantha at all. Um, it was horrendous. We ended up doing about 600 miles. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a disaster. But um, yeah, we, I think we drove through Wick. But it's a very wee small place. John O'Groats and that is amazing. Like, I would really recommend doing that part of Scotland. It is beautiful. But Wick is a huge fishing community um, on the northeast. And it had, do you know, it was a main point of certain types of fish and it's a really popular harbour and this wasn't just for the fishing like that's where kind of 
the town is really you know one of those everything's down at the harbour the restaurants the bars etc um honestly give it a google because it's a beautiful looking place i mean there isn't much to do and i do see why the population's gone down because people will be moving you know to inverness as it's close to the city to get to like you know a big city so people are probably moving out for job opportunities etc now kevin mcleod was a 24-year-old boy in the 1970s, 1970s, 1990s. He was described as quite a handsome boy, and I'll put a photo on Instagram, and he is, he's quite a handsome man, and he's tall with dark hair, dark eyes, etc. So that kind of tall, dark and handsome vibe. He was generally quite a hard worker, and he trained as an electrician at college and actually became an electrician. And if I'm correct, he worked for Rockwater, I believe was the name of the company. Everything I've read about him, that his parents have said and his friends have said, Kevin just seemed like a generally nice guy. Now, he lived in Wick with his mum, June, his dad, Hugh, and he had two younger brothers, Andrew and Martin. He was also really close to his uncle, Alan, who was actually described as more of a brother to him than actually his uncle. He also had a long-term girlfriend called Emma, and they'd been together since they were 18. So bear in mind, he's 24 now, so that's like six years. And they were actually getting married in the May. And the story I'm taking part in this, uh, talking about, sorry, this actually takes part in February. Now, they didn't currently live together, but they had just been approved for a council house. So they were actually going to move out from where their parents were, like get married, set up their wee house. And it was all looking really, really good. So the parents were helping set that up on Friday the 7th of February 1997. They had been round at Kevin and Emma's new house and were just getting something sorted for them, getting all kind of tidied up. And they went back to their house. At 9.30pm, a friend called Mark called the house phone asking if Kevin fancied a pint and a game of pool down at the local pub. So obviously Kevin's just been doing work in the house. He deserves it. So off he goes. And he goes out with his friend. And, you know, I read a thing that his mum like, told him to wear a jacket because it was quite cold. And it was particularly cold that night, even for February at the north in the north of Scotland. It was still pretty cold that night. Now, Kevin wasn't a big drinker. Like he did drink and he had the occasional pint, but he wasn't a huge, huge drinker. But that night it was reported that he had quite a few drinks and had more drinks than usual and after the pint in the pool they actually continued and went to waterfront nightclub um, at 1 30 a.m he went for a taxi and it was believed that him and mark were getting in this taxi to go to a local house party with some girls um, i don't think it was any like romantic at all i think it was just friends um, but they actually got out during the taxi drive and walked back into town to go to the all-night bakery which i understand like at 1 30 a.m i would rather go to an all-night bakery than a house party um so they basically, I don't know if they got to the bakery or not, but they were down by the harbour and Mark actually went to find a taxi and they couldn't find one. So he came back and Kevin was actually gone from where he was last seen in the harbour. So there isn't much information of then if Mark went home, if Mark did whatever, but I'm just assuming Mark went home. Now, on Saturday, the 8th of June, June, sorry, February, <laughs> June is the mum's name, <laughs> finds out that he hadn't come home. And she basically goes into town and looks and she finds Mark. And when she asked Mark when he last saw Kevin, Mark said he basically hasn't seen him from the night before. So as you can imagine, June is really, really worried. So June just knew something was wrong and calls the police. Now, this inquiry started pretty much straight on and people go looking for him. But unfortunately, everyone's kind of thinking the same thing. Like, they're going to have to get divers to go and look at the harbour. So on Sunday the 9th of February 1997 at around 11am he is found in the water by search teams in the soft brown mud at the bottom of the harbour. Now he was dragged to land and he was a bit swollen due to you know, being under the water, a bit bruised 
And what I found really interesting about this as well is um, obviously the police knew him because it's such a small town that the police knew everybody. And if they didn't know him, they would know the parents, etc. So you hear about this so many times that like people are in accidents and they get found and then it's like, OK, we're going to have to get someone to come and ID them. We're going to have to get we're going to have to like see if anybody's missing. But I think it was one of those that the police must have been dreading, you know, when they found the body at the bottom. Even if it wasn't Kevin, it's probably someone they're going to know. Do you know what I mean? Now, the police then went, obviously, to the house of his parents and they went to the door. But what I find a bit bizarre is from what I can gather, they didn't go in. Like, they stood on the doorstep. And as I've said to you, I've just said how they know each other and everything like that. But I think they just kind of stood on the doorstep and delivered this news, like, really coldly, is what his mum, June, reported to have kind of said somewhere to that, that it was just kind of like, yep, done. And the investigation went quite quick. Theories came out to the family that it was basically a tragic accident and there was no suspicious circumstances. They said that unfortunately Kevin had drunkenly fell onto a bollard at the harbour side. He then staggered into the water and drowned. And it was a really awful way to go. But basically that's what she was told by one of the senior detectives who she described as quite cold and in a suit. And that is basically it. That is unfortunately the case of how Kevin died. Or is it? So I am basically going to tell you more about this. That is the, the basic story of what happened. But I'm going to tell you my reasons and reasons why other people don't believe that's what happened. So this is when it starts to get my opinions. But everything I'm telling you is obviously just facts. But it's basically what I think about it. So someone else that didn't agree at the time was Procurator Fiscal. And they asked for this to be treated as a murder inquiry. But this was ignored, basically. And nobody ever used this term or told the family this or, you know, they never told them about the other injuries like that Kevin had sustained when they found in his autopsy. It took them three months to actually tell the family this. Now, you're thinking, obviously, what injuries? And I'm talking about the injuries that were caused by the bollard. Now, the bollard caused such injuries, like the autopsy said, the injuries to his abdomen were similar to those of car crash victims and it created proper internal injuries. Now. That's fine if someone's properly crashed into a bollard. But how, how would you feel if I told you that bollard was three foot tall? Like the ones you see on like high streets. Yeah, that's three foot a bit tall. fishy. A bit fishy. And you'd have to ram yourself right into it. Like, you know, I know he was drunk, but you'd have to properly. Well, exactly. But to rupture your spleen and have three blown arteries all by yeah. a bollard. Like, you're talking that's high speed, as you said, car crash victims, but to be drunk and stumbling. So then he's walked into this bollard, ruptured his spleen, etc. He then walks 18 feet to fall into the water. And they also said in the autopsy he had injuries that looked like he'd been attacked. Now, obviously, you're thinking, OK, well, if this is a theory, why did he check his clothes for DNA, etc.? However, Kevin's clothes were destroyed without any forensic testing and with no record of either who disposed of them or who gave permission for them to be disposed. So they were actually burned. They were incinerated. So they weren't returned to the family. Nothing like that. The clothes were actually completely destroyed and no testing was done on the clothes. Now, witnesses came forward and said on the night out, he got into a verbal fight with work colleagues in a bar. He then went to the Waterfront nightclub and Craig, a colleague from Rockwater, actually punched him in the face. So nobody's saying that this person done it obviously that night there was a couple of occasions with work people so like did that continue into the street and maybe a fight went wrong and he ended up in the water like 
you know, there's so much that you're just like, oh, it could be this, it could be that. But yeah, anyway, so now the police done some door to door in some interviews. So if I said to you, Samantha, in a town of 8,000 people, how many people do you think they would have interviewed? All of them. Cool. That's what I was kind of guessing. Like, if you look at some of our other cases, you talk about them. They interviewed 57 people and three of these people were re-interviewed. So obviously there was something that flagged up, but nothing else happened. Now, rumours led to tips being like handed in the police, but as most people then found out, the tips went absolutely nowhere. Now, a night's watchman for the harbour also came forward and said he saw a man crouched near the bollard, which was presumed to be Kevin. But again, that lead was not checked up on. Now, D.I. Angus Chisholm from Inverness begins a new investigation for basically like five months. And he actually says to the family that he was only there due to the media attention, which I'm like, mm, don't say that. Um, a fatal accident inquiry was due to be held in May 1998. And this focused on the failings, the murder investigation, basically like, you know, the ask for it to be this not being heard. Um, there was someone involved, D.S. Richard Martin, who was actually demoted due to his failings and he was actually demoted from DS back to uniform in Inverness and loads of people took the stand and kept focusing on internal injuries saying like it could not be discounted that it wasn't the bollard but they need to look at something bigger than that. Now Jeanette McFarlane actually got involved in the fatal accident inquiry and she's a pathologist and she said she'd only seen this injury three times before and it was all serious assaults, never something like a bollard. And as I said, like three severed arteries is crazy, but also the injuries were obtained an hour before he died. So if he was to fall straight into the water and drown, that wouldn't be an hour before he died. So like, did he lie there? But then how did Mark not see him? Do you know what I mean? This is when I'm just like, it all gets a bit bizarre for me. Now, the McLeod family actually believes that Kevin was assaulted and then pushed into the water. Um, now, the dad was told by rumours in the town that they didn't like that there was a second assault that night mark didn't know anything about this and police basically just didn't take him seriously when he told them and he asked them to check up on it um and actually following this fatal accident inquiry it was an open verdict return so nothing came from it and the case faded away as always and goes cold but i'm going to talk to you about some of the kind of tips and stuff that came through so in 1999 a taxi driver named ronald hutchison said he saw a man sitting covered in blood at the harbour that night and another taxi driver actually said the same and they made statements to police. However, for no reason, both men withdrew their statements. In 2002, Neil, 2002 sorry, Neil McConaughey, who's a criminal justice officer, said he knew Kevin had been murdered, but was threatened to basically be quiet. Now, this one really stuck with me because I was like, right, OK. But there is rumours that a man was out on day release from prison in that area. So he was on like home leave. But who? Like, that's never ever came out who that was or anything about it. In August 2000, a woman called Sylvia Woods said she saw Kevin being attacked by several men at the harbour. And again, she did a statement. She then withdrew her statement again for no reason and was actually charged with like making a false statement and sentenced to 200 hours community service. But when I looked into that a bit more, people said Sylvia wasn't a liar. She wasn't the type of person that would make something up. She didn't want clout. She didn't want anything like that. So why would she say that? Like, she had absolutely no reason to say that. And then why withdraw it? In 2003, Sylvia actually gave a story to the papers saying the police made her withdraw the statement. 
Ronald also went to the press and said the same. The police asked him to withdraw his statement as well. Now, this is obviously when I'm like, mm, were the police involved? Now, there was a rumour in the town at the time that the prisoner who was on home relief was actually involved romantically with a police officer. So it's a bit like, okay, it was like things covered up. I'd like to think the police wouldn't cover up this much. Like, I don't think that would be right. But Alan, the uncle, asked basically to confirm that the prisoner was on home leave and was declined an answer for this. So it's actually not 100% confirmed if this prisoner was on home leave or not. Now, something I just want to go back to there and hear your opinion on this as well, Samantha, right? See, if this woman went to the press and said that she did withdraw her statement because the police asked her to, I wouldn't let them be sentencing me to 200, community, to 200 hours. I think I would then be like, okay, I'm keeping my statement. Do you know, like, that's the one bit that I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound too right to me. Because if the police are telling you to withdraw a statement, why would you then take a punishment for it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a tricky one as well, though, because they could have something on you or they could, you know, threaten you with something bigger than 200 hours of service. Um, it is strange. I, I'm with you on that one. But yeah, like I said, they could mm-hmm. be threatening her with worth, with my words, with worse. Yeah, yeah, of course. So in 2002, Chief Constable of Police in Scotland at the time, Roy Cameron, was asked to independently review the work of the police in the area. Now, he completed this at the end of the year and provided his report, which was kept private. So nobody got to see this report. However, Uncle Alan managed to obtain this due to the Freedom of Information Act. Now, we've spoke about the Freedom of Information Act before, but I'm just going to basically read it again because it is something that I forget. So the Freedom of Information Act in Scotland 2002 is an act of the Scottish Parliament which gives everyone the right to ask for any information held by the Scottish public authorities. So they can get a copy of it even if it's declined. I think they can edit it so they can take names out, they can take things out, but they have to give them a copy and they have to give them it within, I'm sure it's like seven or 14 days or something. So some of the names of police were hidden, the names of senior officers were kept out of it. And when asked why, they said they were already being disciplined privately, which I'm like, okay, so they're being disciplined. But for what? Yeah, and also if they're being disciplined for their failings, why are they still in the police then if it's this serious, do you know? Um, yeah. Also, there was a recommendation in the report to apologise to the family for the failure and they had never been apologised to since it came. Um, there was no mention in the report of the friends that he fought with that night. The chat of a prisoner, like being out on day release, was not disclosed in the report either. In December 2007, Chief Constable Ian Latimer actually issued an apology to the family at the assembly rooms in Wick with a small group of witnesses. I mean, definitely a bit late, 10 years kind of on, but never mind. Now, the apology is accepted, and there was actually then a two-hour discussion on the investigation, and his family were asking for a review and asked for this to be opened again and, you know, to get some more information on this, to which rumoured Ian Latimer just kind of silently sat there, like, wasn't really saying, like, you know, okay, yeah, we'll do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was just kind of, he was just there quietly. Now, um, um, this, like, after this review, Alan, in about 2009, got a phone call to his house basically being told to give up looking for justice and his parents were also getting these kind of threatening calls from unknown numbers basically just saying like stop looking for this and this apparently went on for quite a few years now in 2017 finally police took responsibility for the failing in this case and they actually got a public apology again from Ian Livingston who's the chief of Scotland police 
and I'm just going to read that to you which is kind of a bit big but I feel like it is something to kind of hear. So I have today met with Mr and Mrs McLeod to personally apologise for the policing response to their son Kevin's death in 1997. The tragic events leading to the recovery of Kevin's body from Wick Harbour left Mr and Mrs McLeod with 20 year search for answers. I can only imagine the pain and trauma for the family has suffered and I have nothing but the highest admiration for their strength and determination in seeking those answers. Since this tragic incident, numerous investigations have substantiated the family's belief that there were serious failings on the part of the Northern Constabulary in both the initial and subsequent handling of this case. I hope that this unreserved apology may go some way to bring some form of closure to Kevin's family. And once again, on behalf of Police Scotland, I apologise unreservedly for the past failings of the police services in Scotland. So, I mean, like, this is great. That's obviously a huge apology. I mean, it is like nearly 20 20 years after it happened. Um, But I thought it was really interesting. Some of the words like that he used, like he used incident, he didn't use accident. So I think, you know, Ian Livingston there did take some responsibility for this. Now, in 2018, a witness came forward saying that they actually saw Kevin being attacked, said they saw him going into the water, said they kept quiet due to the fact they were like scared of being, you know, hurt or etc. Blah, blah. Um, now, the thing about this is as well that like this has happened before in Wick. There have been a couple of other issues as well, which aren't big enough for me to do cases on. But there was another case between like 1997 in like 1999 so there was a couple of failings and like one of them was a fisherman Kevin Giles I think his name was or Gillies I think uh, you know me my pronunciation I'm really sorry who was basically killed by like a taxi driver I think driver. it'll be Giles sorry. right okay cool that's fine no, good to know uh, he was actually killed by a taxi driver the taxi driver basically ran him over I don't know the circumstances of it it could have been a complete accident but like the taxi wasn't even like preserved like the taxi driver's daughter was able to take the taxi home that night and everything so I think this isn't the first time there's been a couple of like issues but anyway, the, like, I know it's mental because you could probably thinking like, that's it. But there's honestly more, which I don't understand either. So a Glasgow detective named Les Brown actually went to investigate Kevin's death himself. Now, he had a pretty good clearance rate of like 98%. And I think he's just one of those, like, we've had it before in cases where like a solo detective just off he goes, like, I'm going to investigate. So off he goes to Wick. And this is the bits that like really, really angered me, which is why I've kind of saved it to the end because I'm just like, you kidding me on. So when he first arrived in Wick, he was told by police that he died, Kevin died, when he drunkenly peed off the harbour and fell onto the boat, Aurora. He said this was confirmed by matching the marks on his abdomen from the wicker baskets and fishing trail. Where has this come from? Like, there is absolutely no record of this ever being a thing, but he was told this by police. So everyone's like, okay. So Brown, obviously being quite a clever wee man, tracks down the owner of the Aurora boat. And they're literally like, I've never had this stuff on board. Like, I can prove I didn't have fishing trail on board. And then it's like, OK, well, have you told the police that? And the police are like, and the person, sorry, that owns the Aurora is like, I've never been interviewed by the police. The police have never spoke to me. What? Like, I'm literally like, what do you mean? So then Brown went to see the property fiscal at the time and they were very apparently quite shady like oh like he's, he's busy so they're like okay like Ian Brown's like I'll wait and I think they were like oh he's not gonna leave so he eventually did see him and um 
he basically said, can I see a photo of the Aurora to just prove if they like fishing creel and stuff's in it? And they show him a photo of a different boat. So Ian goes, this is a different boat. And the fiscal goes, how did you figure that out? To which Ian says, there's a different name written on this boat. Oh my God, I knew you were going to say that. I was like, please not be the name in the photo. And, and you know when you're just like, Ugh. and then I'm just like, and then obviously there was another woman who approached him and said, you know, the young man being kicked by three men and said she actually named one of the men and said she knew him as like a biker from the area. Now he convinced the woman, like, go, go forward and tell the police this. Now this woman comes forward and is charged with wasting police time. No way. I don't understand. Another woman also came forward and basically said her boyfriend came home and was like, I've messed up. I've killed Kevin McLeod. But I couldn't find any more about this, which is wild. Another one, um, the pathologist um, was told that he had uh, fallen in at low tide. So obviously checked for like injuries and stuff that you'd find at low tide, which is actually untrue. If anyone checked the tide, he fell at high tide, which the pathologist said changes the way they look at it completely. And they would have looked for certain different things that wouldn't have been seen if someone was to fall at low tide. So it's just a lot of like, I don't think they're deliberately sabotaging this. I'd like to think they're not sabotaging this. I just, forgive me for saying it. I feel like the police that were doing this at the time were just a bit shit. Um, also, a witness who claims he was the last person to see Kevin McLeod alive um, said he called 999 for help. Now, this person actually contacted MF- MFR News and the person says they actually currently still speak from PTSD from it, said, I phoned 99 services basically gave like basically just said like help there's someone drowning at Wick Harbour and then hung up and he basically explained like he was walking home and heard like some voices commotion scuffling whatever and then heard a massive splash so he kind of saw all that and was just like he saw two people and Kevin in the water and he believed he kind of went like under the water and the two people like looked around and then just kind of like scurried away so he phoned 999 but obviously like the calls and stuff aren't kept for long like they'll definitely be gone by now but like they weren't really like that wasn't checked at the time like no one had thought you know like of either sending an ambulance out or the police out at that time but also when the body was then discovered two days later whoever took that call never thought of saying oh I received a call on that night saying someone was in the water at Wick Harbour do you know what I mean um also just to confirm I think I just said there that the guy who's got PTSD he does have PTSD I don't know if it's anything to do with this so just to confirm he didn't I'm not saying it was that now the most recent update in this case is in 2022 the Merseyside police also looked into this and it took a while I think because of COVID and everything but according to a report um the Merseyside officers who spent months re-examining this case, concluded it is highly unlikely the 24-year-old was murdered and said he drowned after an accidental fall. Now, this is a 357-page document and is said to have found that Kevin's serious injuries were not caused by an assault, but caused by him falling onto one or more creel nets on a fishing boat after a night out in February 1997. Now, obviously, that's the most recent thing you find in the news, but like that doesn't really have any kind of not that it has any like not like like not 
I think the word, I don't know the word, like credibility, because like it is a separate police unit that did an investigation, but like it is just an independent kind of thing from Merseyside Police. So it's not like that's it confirmed. Now that's all the information I really have on Kevin. The rest is kind of just, again, my opinion and just my thoughts on it. Um, I think the fact Ian Livingston apologised shows there was definitely a failing from Police Scotland. There was 100% a failing from Police Scotland. And I think that's really, really sad that basically that happened. Um, I don't think it was a malicious cover-up. I really, really don't think they did anything wrong. I do believe, without sounding horrible, like this is 1997. This is a tiny town of Wick, as we just said. The police aren't prepared for stuff like that. The police don't expect people to be brutally murdered and chucked into water or whatever. Um, so they probably just thought, oh, man's drunk, falling in the water. And they've probably just wrote it off. Like, this isn't the first time it's happened. There's been other people that have died in Wick Harbour because they have been drunk and fallen out of a pub into the harbour. So I don't think it was malicious, but I do think more could have definitely been done. And more time could have been spent, even during you know, the clothes being preserved, etc. His parents still believe he was murdered. And I wouldn't say maybe murder. I would even maybe say manslaughter. Because I think he maybe got into another fight or something. And he's maybe then stumbled in the water. They pushed him into the water. But I don't think people have gone out that night intentionally wanting to kill him. But then I don't know. I also, you don't know what kind of business he was in. You don't. We don't know, do you know, it's kind of all I've got. So, yeah, this is one that I'd, I just kind of want to raise some awareness to it. And just, you know, especially with the Shekibaya case right now, like, police can make mistakes and they can fuck up. And I think this case is a huge proof of that, really, because it was very clear that they did make some really, really stupid mistakes, which has actually caused this poor family and, you know, the amount of people that knew Kevin to not have full answers of what happened but yes Samantha do you have anything you wish to add <laughs> uh, no you've pretty much said it all I kind of agree with you as well um it's like an it's an accident gone wrong um and it could be also that maybe one of the people that was beating them up was a police officer like but he was off duty and everything's been covered up but off like mm-hmm. very badly but again, it's all hearsay. You, there's no evidence because they burned it all. They didn't look into it. Um, the boat issue, like, yeah, you fall onto a boat that, well, we've all, the boat owner said, doesn't have the stuff on it, but let's pretend yeah. it does. And then, what, you wake up an hour later and then you fall into the ocean? Well, the, the sea, like yeah. the harbour. Um, yeah, none of it adds up. It's a complete mess. and. Yeah, you just think that sometimes you wish the police learn a little bit more from their mistakes because they do get made a lot. But we all make mistakes in the job. However, these ones are quite severe. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. I think to maybe just like go in from it thinking the worst because you would rather a murder, you thought something was a murder and it wasn't, than you thinking something wasn't a murder and it was, do you know? And like, if they just preserved the clothes, if they just taken DNA swabs, if they just interviewed more than 50 people. Do you know what I mean? There's about 50 people on a bus in the morning. Like, yeah. I know it's only a town of 8,000, but like, like, do you know, if you look back to the case we did like two, like a couple of weeks ago, um, 
with the ice cream wars when that family were murdered they interviewed thousands yeah in the cul-de-sac and it's like you could have actually interviewed like most people do you know everyone that was in the nightclub with them that night every and also why was three of the witnesses why did they go back like to be interviewed again do you know what did they what did they have what information did they have they wanted I don't know it just leaves so many questions this one and it might not be a crime it might not be. It might be that he did actually tragically fall, but I think the crime was then the way the police handled it. But yes, please let me know your thoughts. I would love to know if you think he actually was murdered or he just tragically fell. Um, I am really, really intrigued by this one. <laughs>